Now, let's get into this series. We are in week number three, if you'd grab your notes, of a series of messages that we've called What's Inside Us. And we're looking at what the Bible tells us about what's wrong with us. Now, Isaiah has some fascinating things to say. Isaiah, he is the longest, and in some ways, he is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And what we have here that was read to you a few minutes ago is one of the great prophecies about the Christ or the Messiah. It is the things that the Messiah is supposed to do. Now, because this is the third in a series, let's just take some stock of what we're doing and why we're doing it. First, we're talking about sin. This really is a study of sin. Why? Because sometime in the late 19th century or early 20th century, basically Western society told us to get rid of the concept of sin. I can remember in the early 90s, I read this book by Carl Menninger, Whatever Became of Sin. Because back in the day, you see, due to all of the abuses, they said when you use words like sin or you use words like evil, when you use the word sin with regard to yourself, this is common therapy today, by the way, you look at yourself and you call yourself a sinner. Well, don't do that because you just crush yourself. You'll make yourself feel guilty. You'll feel terrible. And what's worse, don't you dare call other people sinners. Don't put sin on them. You'll crush them. It's abusive. You'll make people feel shame. And so sin became considered da dangerous in our culture. In fact, I find it fascinating. A guy by the name of Andrew Del Banco wrote a book Great book, man, I encourage you to read it. And the book is called The Death of Satan. And he says something here that I just wanna read it to you. He says, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and our intellectual resources available for coping with that evil. And then he puts it perfectly. He says, we have an inescapable problem we feel something that our culture no longer gives us the vocabulary to express. And that is really true. And here's what people are actually discovering today. You really have to go back to the Bible to get a vocabulary because sin is not well understood. If I asked you, the average person, what sin, many people would say, well, sin is just breaking God's law. And while I would say you're right, that is part of it, People fail to recognize how much more nuanced and multifaceted it really is. It's profound. So if you remember a few weeks ago, we started this series and I talked to you about how sin at its root is really just reducing God. You're shrinking God in your life. You might go through the religious motions. You might feel that you believe in God, but God's not very important to your life. Other things are. And as you reduce God in your life, you're actually reducing yourself. You're creating a smallness of spirit. You're not living a glorious life because you're not treating God as glorious. And then you remember we had celebration weekend and then in our second week we came back and we said sin is not just reducing God, but sin is also replacing God. You replace God and you break his heart. 
And when you break God's heart, what you're doing by going to these other things is you're creating a spirit of addiction. The way that the prophet put it is he said, you're putting yourself in the arms of other lovers and it creates a spirit of addiction because those other lovers can never satisfy what we need. So we continue to go back to fill the emptiness or to medicate or to fill the void and God says you get addicted to it. Now, today, this third week, I wanna look at Isaiah and I just wanna talk to you about how sin ruins you. So let's get into this, shall we? If you don't have your notes already, grab them. Because this passage is telling us some things. It's telling us what the problem is. It's telling us what God's going to do about it. And then it tells us how we respond. So let's start. What is the problem? Isaiah deals first with the physical and the non-physical. You got to understand. Isaiah deals with both the body and the soul. For example, at the beginning, he actually mentions the poor. He mentions the economically depressed. He says, verse 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the who? Now you need to understand, this is the first sermon that Jesus ever preached and he chose this text. Now, listen, when you start a campaign, the first thing that you're gonna say, you wanna make sure it's perfect, that it perfectly conveys what you're really about. And so when Jesus Christ preaches his very first sermon, the first thing he comes up with is economic brokenness. Isn't that interesting? I think it's fascinating. But then second, he goes on from economic brokenness and he moves into emotional brokenness. Look what he says next. He says he has sent me to bind up the who? The brokenhearted. And then he goes on. He says, I'm not just going after those that are economically depressed and emotionally broken, he says, also, I am meant to release from darkness the prisoners. Now, releasing people from darkness, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about intellectual blindness. He's talking about spiritual blindness. A lot of people suffer with that today in America. Not seeing the truth. And Jesus says, I've come to release people from that darkness. And then he says, last, here's what I've come to do. He says, I've come to, watch this, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I want to tell you up front, as you read this right now on the screen or in your notes, you're not going to get the nuance reading it in English. I, you know, I almost want to apologize because you hear me say that a lot, but it's true. I'm sorry. The Bible wasn't written originally in English. 2,000 years ago in a, in a few dead languages. And so it requires some study sometimes. Now, he's quoting Leviticus chapter 25, and what Isaiah's talking about is the year of Jubilee. And what he says is, I've come to bring the year of the Lord's favor or the year of Jubilee. What is that? Well, let me back up for a second. How many of you have ever heard of the Sabbath day? Raise your hand. You've heard of the Sabbath day. One day in seven shall be called a Sabbath rest. Is that right? Everybody's heard of that. But have you heard that God also said to the people, not just one day in seven shall you rest, but he said one year in seven years is to be a Sabbath year. Anybody ever hear of that? In other words, he didn't just institute the day. He instituted a year, and basically the Sabbath year looked like this. In those days, 
went through, you, you had poor crops or you had poor fortune or you had poor judgment. You came to the place where you were so in debt. How many of you can relate to debt? Come on. He says, if you've gotten into the place where you're so in debt and you couldn't pay off your debts, here's what would happen typically in this culture. You would become an indentured servant. Now, this is what the Bible calls slavery. This is the idea of biblical slavery. You're in debt, therefore you become an indentured servant to the people that you actually owe. Now, every seventh year, God said you're to Sabbath. And check this out. It was amazing. Here's what happened in the Sabbath year. All the debts were forgiven. Everybody say, yee-haw. All the debts are forgiven. Everybody gets to declare bankruptcy and start over. I mean, it's just amazing. Except you don't end up with bad credit because it wasn't really bankruptcy. It's just a Sabbath year. All the servants went free. All the land was to be given a break. The people were to eat from all that they had stored away for that whole year. So you let the ground replenish. You don't till the fields. Everybody rested. The land rested. It's a Sabbath year. Now, by the way, you can read about the Jubilee year in the two passages of the scripture that I've, I've put in your notes, Leviticus 25 and uh, Deuteronomy 15. But guys, here's the point. It was radical. But I got to tell you something. Are you ready for more? Because it gets even more radical than this. This is how crazy God is. Not only was there a Sabbath day, and not only was there a Sabbath year, but every seven Sabbath years, there was another Sabbath. Every seven Sabbath years. So seven times seven is? And then on the next year, which would make it the what? 50th year, they would call that a Sabbath year, and that was the year of Jubilee. And get how crazy this is. Not only are all your debts forgiven, not only are all the servants, let they, they can go free, but if any time in that 49 years, your family has lost their original land, bad crops, bad judgment, get this, all the land went back to the original families. The whole purpose of this Sabbath year, this year of Jubilee, was to do a reset. Let me ask you a question, because God is brilliant here. Let me ask you a question. How do you make sure, if you blow it economically, that next time you get a running start? How do you make sure that happens? That you get a second chance, really? Let me ask you another question. How do you make sure that you don't have long-term families develop a culture of poverty? How do you do that? Learning habits that have to do with poverty and keep people in a cycle of poverty. Let me ask you another question. How do you avoid people turning into a culture of wealth? That what they love is money and they live for their money and they live for the building of wealth. How do you do that? Because that's not godly either. You know how God did it? He instituted a year of Jubilee. It was a hard reset. And it was one of the things that was supposed to be done. Now, what was pretty interesting about it was that it was not only a time for spiritual rest, but God says, economically, I'm forgiving you. I'm gonna give it to you so that you can come out of the place where you are economically. It was astounding. It was remarkable. I gotta tell you something. Israel never did it. Even though God said to do it, Israel failed to be obedient to what God said. Now, here's what happens, you ready? The Messiah shows up, Jesus, and he says in Isaiah, I have come 
to bring the Sabbath, Sabbath. I have come to bring the year of Jubilee, which is meant to solve individual problems and corporate problems. And so he says, verses three and four, look at this. He's talking about complete transformation to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them. And he goes on and he lists all of these things And then he says, they will be called, these people now will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Now guys, I wanna say something to you. Oaks of righteousness, that's a scripture that we have over here on our wall if you're indoors with us today. And I just say to you, oaks of righteousness, it's not just symbolic. You know what it means? It means organic righteousness. Meaning God doesn't just declare you're righteous. He just doesn't say you're righteous. What he does is he wraps you in his robe of righteousness. He puts his spirit within you. His spirit begins to actually make you righteous as you cooperate with him. He puts his nature in you. It's a sign of the new covenant. Somebody says, I I want to follow God. I have to start being a good person. No, no. You entrust your life to Jesus and let his spirit come to live within you, the Lord will begin to change you. In fact, don't worry so much about what you have to change. Worry more about just walking with Jesus and trusting Jesus. You're gonna find that your life will change. Why? Because that's the net return on the spirit living within you. If you've not had a change in your life, I would ask yourself, have you really trusted Jesus? Have you really given your life over to him and said, come and live within me? Now, here's what you have here. He then goes and he gives this list, this incredible list. Look what he says. Let's look at it. He says, to bestow on them a crown of beauty, he says. Now, we're gonna get back to them. He says, I'm gonna give you a crown of beauty instead of something, instead of what? Ashes. Then he talks about oil of gladness instead of mourning. Then he talks about a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. In other words, you are gonna become inside out, completely transformed. Then, guys, I'm so excited to share this with you because when you see what the Messiah says, Jesus says about himself, he says, not only are you gonna be transformed, but I I wanna transform the world. Look what he says. Let's go on, verse four. He says, then those transformed people, they're gonna rebuild the ancient ruins and they're gonna restore the places long devastated. They will renew ruined cities that have been devastated for how long? Generations. Generations. See, listen, we're supposed to rebuild cities. And if you look at verses four and five, it doesn't mean that we're just to put up new subdivisions. No, listen to me. If you look carefully, he's saying in that city, there will be racial harmony. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Look at what it says. It says, aliens will shepherd your flocks and foreigners will work your fields and your vineyards. In other words, aliens are going to be working with you. 
And you have to be careful because it says, the English doesn't bring this out, it says aliens are gonna shepherd, the word shepherd. It doesn't just mean that they're gonna be your hired hands. No, it means they're gonna stand with you. It means they're gonna take responsibility with you. There's racial harmony. There's the rebuilding of cities. There's personal transformation. The whole nine yards, this is what Jesus Christ came to do. Does anybody wanna celebrate that? That's awesome. Jesus says, this is what I'm about to do with sin. Now, you're saying, I thought this was a study about sin. What does this tell us about sin? Listen very carefully. What Isaiah is telling us about sin is that the wages of our sin is ashes. Now, I want you to notice something that he said. He said, I will put a crown of beauty instead of what? Why? Let me ask you a question. What is, it our, what is our cultural custom when people die? What do we wear? When somebody dies, we typically wear black, don't we? Or you wear black. You know, if anything is really going wrong in your life, you'll, you'll wear black. But now what you did in the days of the Bible is you didn't just wear black The Bible says you went into a fireplace and you got ashes and you took those ashes and you heaped those ashes on your head, all over your head. Not like Ash Wednesday that, you know, when we're talking about, um, when we're talking about just putting an ash, a cross of ash on your forehead. I'm talking about you covered your head in ash and you wore sackcloth, a hard material. You looked ugly. You looked dirty. And what you were saying to everybody around you is, this is my life right now, it's ash. Now, think with me for just a minute. What does that mean? Do you understand the symbolism? What are ashes? You put something in the fire, and what does fire do to everything? It knocks it apart. There are chemicals that were cohering, right? Molecules that were cohering, they were together. For example, you put wood in a fire. Look at this wood in the fire. It's going to become ash because, no, go back to that. You keep jumping ahead of me. You got this fire and it stops cohering. Where there was cohesion, there's no longer coherence. Where it was once integrated, see all these various chemicals that held it together that turned that into wood, what does a fire do? Let me tell you what fire does. Fire destroys things that should be put together. That's what fire does. It destroys coherence, and so it goes to ashes. Look, if you put your hand in the fire for too long, what's going to happen? It's going to go to ash. If you throw a piece of paper in the fire, what's going to happen? It's going to go to ash. Now, what does God say? God says, when Jesus says... I'm going to give you beauty for ashes. He's actually referring to everything that we've been looking at, the whole survey. It's an amazing metaphor. You guys need to think about this, ashes. Think about this. Because when it comes to sin, this is exactly what life is like. It's a good illustration. In fact, here's what I'd like for you to do. I want you all to think of a chicken in your oven. It's almost lunchtime, can we do that? Everybody visualize it. Do you have it? A nice roasted chicken in your oven. You guys don't start leaving early. Ushers, bar the doors. Now, you roast that chicken, you bring that chicken out on the table, and immediately it's probably too hot to eat. So what do you do? You wait for 15 minutes. Nope, you don't need to go to that picture. (laughs) You wait for 15 minutes, and then you're happy. 
Now, why? Why are you happy? Because now you can eat it. Now, you understand the only reason that you're happy is because that chicken is losing energy. It's losing heat. You can see the energy coming off of it, and that's how life is. But I'm going to tell you, if you leave that chicken for three hours, are you going to want to eat it? I don't know. What's happening to it? It's losing energy. Now, if you leave that chicken for three days, are you going to want to eat that chicken? Who here would still eat the chicken? Come on, show your face. Oh, we've got a few morbid people in here. Three days. All right, all right, you awesome people that are going to vomit, clearly. What are you going to do after three weeks? Leave that same chicken for three weeks, constantly losing the energy. Of course, what was I saying just seconds ago? You could take that chicken and you could burn it up in the fire and it's going to go to ash very quickly. But don't you see, even if you let that, let that chicken be, it's going to go to ash anyway. You can watch that chicken as it goes to ashes. Now, friends, listen to me. That's the way existence is. I'm going to tell you, when I'm talking about the chicken eventually going to ash, even if you did nothing to it, you're looking at yourself in the mirror. You're going to ashes. Now, you put yourself in the fire. You live in perpetual sin. And you're going to go to ashes quicker. But the Bible says we're all going to ash anyway. See how sin ruins you? Now listen, I'm going to say this to you, friends. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter. You can diet all you want. <laughs> you can go to the gym all you want. You can go to the doctor all you want. You can exercise two hours a day to try and keep yourself coherent and keep yourself whole. But I'm telling you, you're falling apart. You're spreading. You will continue to spread. You will continue to fall apart. What are we talking about here? Here's what Isaiah is saying and that you have to get. This is a biblical truth. Write this down. The whole world right now is burning in a flame of sin. Write that down. The whole world is burning in a flame of sin. It's under the curse of sin. And without intervention, your ashes, your dust. And when you live in sin, when you want to be your own master, when you want to be your own Lord, when you want to be your own savior, ashes thou art. Now, what is sin? Sin is fire that goes against God's design for the way he created things to be. You can write that down. See, God made things for to, to, to be a certain way. He made you to have joy. He made you to have flourishing. He made you to have growth. God made you to have shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. It means every kind of human flourishing. But what is the problem? Sin will destroy you, that's the problem. Do you know even, even in the small things of life? Let's just get down to the micro, shall we? I want you to think for a minute about when someone treats you badly and you say, I'm not gonna forgive. Now, some of you are in that situation right now. You've been treated badly and you refuse to forgive somebody and you say, I will not forgive. Now, listen, 
God designed life to be lived a certain way. What is God's design? I'll tell you right now. I know God's will for you. God's design, God says, I forgive you, therefore you must forgive them. God says, if I do it, you do it. Now that's the word of God. And by the way, if you don't forgive, it's a sin. And what are the consequences of sin? Take a look at this visual. Everything is going to ash. It doesn't matter if it's in the fire or not. See, this is what Isaiah is saying. Except that when you live in sin, it's a fire. You start going against God's design, living in perpetual sin, and you're going to ash a whole lot faster. Even something as simple as unforgiveness. Guys, look at me for just a minute. Do we all understand here what hell really is? When we talk about going to hell, let me tell you what hell is. Hell is the inevitable outcome of a soul that is breaking down and going to ash. Don't you see? People get it wrong. People say, oh, I'm scared. I had better not sin because God's gonna send me to hell or as long as I stay sinful, God's gonna get me. But see, here's the problem. <laughs> you completely misunderstand the scripture if you think that's the way it works. God doesn't need to get you. You're getting yourself. Listen to me, friend. When you hold a grudge, what do you think you're doing? You're shrinking your soul. You're destroying yourself. You're turning the flame up on your own heart. My goodness, even medical science today in 2022 is catching up with the scripture. You hold a grudge against people, you hold on to that anger. Watch what it does to your heart. You'll develop stomach problems. You're much more likely to have physical problems. Why? Because you're angry and you refuse to let it go. Not only that, you'll start to break down psychologically. You'll be in denial. Your denial will control you. And it breaks you down spiritually because that's what sin does. Listen, write this down. Sin makes us break down faster. And that's why God says, don't you understand? It'll ruin you if you live in sin. It'll destroy your life. Some of you, you know, you, you look at that visual again and this is what you're doing to your life and your soul looks like this through every choice that you make and eventually you turn up the heat, it disintegrates you. Write that down. It disintegrates us because that's what hell is. Hell is a soul that has been choosing its own way and finally God says, have your way and you've destroyed yourself. See, that flame I'm talking about, it's visible to God. God looks down on all the fire. He sees us falling apart. So God says, sin is ultimately when you go against my natural design for you as human persons. Write that down. Sin is ultimately going against God's natural design for you as a person. Whenever you want to be your own savior, Whenever you want to be your own master, come on, is anybody here today? Do you understand? Listen, when we talk about God's law, God's law is simply the way he built you. 
He built you to love, not to hate. You hate, you're destroying your own soul. He built you to be unselfish, not to be selfish. You're selfish, you're destroying your own soul. He built you not to spend all your money on yourself, but to give it away. That's why he says it over and over again. Give it away. You keep it selfishly, you're destroying your own soul. He built you to forgive. What do you need to do? Friends, listen to me. He built you to have sex inside of the covenant of marriage. He said, two people coming together, you are not to have a whole body commitment unless you have a whole life commitment. Period. Do you understand? For God, none of this is busy work. People, they, they, they just act as though, well, why did God make up all these rules anyway? Listen, God is not just putting you through the motions. God is saying, if you break this, you're breaking yourself. God is saying, I built you this way and you will only flourish. But if you trample on this, you're trampling on your own heart. You're trampling on the world and the world is paid for it. Just turning up the flame. Do you see that? Now, that's the negative part of this point. That's sin doing its job. Sin, again, is ultimately go against God's natural design. But let me tell you what the positive part is. What is God gonna do about that sin? Let's get to the positive. Jesus comes and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach. Now, I just wanna say to you, Isaiah is a long book. Anybody try and get through it? How many of you know it's long? How many of you went from meditating on Isaiah to meditating on Isaiah. Very easy to do. It is an enormous book. And I just want to describe it to you. There's this enormous crisis that's coming up to about chapter 61. But when you read the book, I'll break it down for you. In the early parts of the book, there's going to be this strong, incredible Davidic king, someone who's going to raise a banner in fact, I'll read to you the scripture. He says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom, talking about the Messiah. Basically, it's saying there's this great king that is gonna come. He's gonna be glorious. He's gonna have the spirit of counsel and power of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He's gonna summon all the nations. He's gonna put down all the evil. Listen, this great king, this anointed conqueror, he's gonna make the whole world right. The spirit of the Lord will be upon him to do it. So I want you to see early Isaiah, this reference to Isaiah 11. You and I look at it and we say, oh, that makes sense because the world really is a mess. How many of you would agree the world is a mess? But then here's what happens. I want you to get this. In the middle of Isaiah, starting in about Isaiah 42, suddenly you don't see the conquering king. Suddenly you see this whole new figure jump out and he's unlike the anointed conqueror king. He is the servant. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53. We're told about this servant, not a king, a servant, that he's not attractive. He's probably bald. He's totally unlike this anointed conqueror who is glorious. See, we all want to be around the glorious one, but this other one, what are we told about him? I said Isaiah 53, let's go to that. It said, in fact, could we read this together if you go to that scripture? Let's read it together. It says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, 
nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. We're told, of course, this great and mighty conqueror is going to lead us to victory. But this guy, this guy's going to suffer. This guy, this guy is utterly unstrong. That's what we're told. In fact, it goes on. It gets worse. Look at what it says. Go to the next scripture. It says, here we go. It says, let's read it together. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open up his mouth. He's likened to a little bitty lamb. The most weak, the most little in the animal kingdom, fragile. In other words, you gotta understand, this second figure in Isaiah is so different from the first person. Why is Isaiah doing this? We're told Isaiah 42, one, here is my servant whom I'm uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit upon him and he will bring justice to the nation. Now here's the reason, guys, listen to this. When you come to Isaiah 61, we're doing good Bible study today. You come to Isaiah 61, if you've been reading through Isaiah all along, you get to Isaiah 61, you're at home and your jaw drops and it hits your chest. And you just can't believe it. Because before you had somebody here who was suffering and sweet and ugly and defeated and he's nice and sacrificing, but you have that person compared to this incredible conqueror, this strong one, this glorious one, this beautiful one. And suddenly we get to chapter 61 and we realize it's the same person. Isaiah 61 says, this is the same one. And not only does he proclaim freedom for the captives and he binds up the brokenhearted, do you understand? He's not just a warrior. He is the warrior nurse. He is a conqueror, but he's gentle. He is mighty, but he's loving. Now, how can this be the same person? Now, this is where you gotta understand. Can you tell I'm getting antsy? This is... This is where you got to understand. Isaiah, he's meditating before the Lord and he's saying, this is my theological breakthrough. This is what the Lord has revealed to me and you guys are getting it. He says, don't you see the victory that's going to happen from the king? It's going to be a defeat. The strong one will be incredibly weak. The salvation will happen not by you summoning your strength, not by you obeying the king, it will happen because the great king becomes incredibly weak. You see what I'm saying? This guy, let's go to the conqueror again, just a picture of that conqueror. This guy, this conqueror, what he's saying will actually become this guy. And he will suffer. And he will be defeated and he will die. Now why would that be? Why would he do that? Here's the answer. Look at verse three. In fact, the answer is found, if you just put verse three up there for me, it's found in three words that are used the same time over and over and over again. It's the word instead. And instead is not too bad a translation. It kind of gets at it because basically we're told the Messiah is not just simply saying, listen, you have your ashes. Yeah, your life stinks and you've messed it up. 
I mean, because we're all going, let's not forget the fire. Wood becomes incoherent. It breaks apart. Fire, the fire of sin, it destroys everything, right? He's not just saying, listen, you have your crown of beauty, and let me put a crown of beauty on top of your ashes. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, let me take your crown of beauty off and give you a crown. Let me take, excuse me, your ashes off and give you a crown of beauty instead. And here's what he says, if you write this down. This is how he deals with sin. God says, here's what you have to do. If you will give me, God says, I'll give you what I have if you will give me what you have. God says, I will give you what I have if you'll just give me what you have. Instead, not on top of. He says, I'll take that away and give you something new, but you've got to give it to me. Now listen to me, guys. This is amazing. This figure in Isaiah, he's not beautiful. Why isn't he beautiful? Because we got his beauty. This figure in Isaiah, he's not joyful. Why isn't he joyful? Because we got his joy. Do you see what's happening here? Now this is called, write this down, the principle of substitution. This is how Jesus saves us from our sin. All of a sudden we realize why. We got joy, he gets despair. This is why Jesus on the cross cries out to God and says, Eloi, Eloi leme sabachthani. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's despair. He got your despair. Can you see that? Now, don't you see? Don't you see how strong he'd have to be to do that? Guys, listen. It's one thing if you're a lamb to face people who are about to kill you with poise. But it's another thing if you're not a lamb. If you're a conqueror, but you choose to become a lamb... That's a different thing altogether. You understand what I'm saying? It, look, here, let me put it to you in terms you'll understand. It's one thing if you're ugly. You're going to have to live with it. I understand about that. Did I offend anybody? I'm sorry. But you know who you are. I'm not pointing anybody out. Listen, it's one thing if you're ugly to live with that. It's another thing if you're beautiful to voluntarily become ugly to make somebody else beautiful. You see the difference? Jesus. Behold the beauty of his voluntary ugliness. Behold the strength of his voluntary weakness. Don't you see that he had to be the first figure to have the strength to become the second figure. And of course, being the second figure isn't something that he had to do. It's called substitution. Jesus Christ, when he comes to earth, is able to deal with the fire of sin because he's personally gone through every aspect of the devastation of sin. Listen, I want you to think about what happened to Jesus. Would you for just a minute? He is physically broken he gets ashes. He is psychologically broken. He gets mourning. He is spiritually broken. The father cuts him off. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't you see? 
He gets the spirit of despair. What does that mean for you and me practically? How do we respond to that? Well, these are the practical points, so I hope you take these home and you take these to heart. Let them sink deeply into your heart. Number one, just write this down. Please trust him. Please trust Jesus. Here's what I'm saying. If you look at verse 11, it says something amazing. It says, for as the soil makes the sprout come up and the garden causes the seed to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before the nations. Now, do you see that? Guys, let me tell you something. If I take an acorn and I hold an acorn in my hand, and let's say I have this acorn and I walk around for years with this acorn in my hand, what's gonna happen to that acorn? Nothing. <laughs> Why? Because it has to be planted. You, it's the soil that gives the power of growth to the acorn. Everybody with me? It's the soil that opens up the power of growth in that acorn. Now listen, without Jesus Christ, what's gonna happen in your life? Nothing. But if you trust him, it is the power of that trust that opens up your life. And it'll change you. Amen. That's what it means to trust. But you've got to plant yourself in that soil. Otherwise, do you know what will inevitably happen to that acorn that you never plant? Eventually, that acorn is going to go to ash. I could just carry it around. I could carry it around for years and years and years, but it has to be planted or eventually it's gonna go to ash. And what you're being told right here is, listen, let's look at it again, meditate on this. For as the soil, let's read it together, come on. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord, so the who? Sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all the nations. Sovereign Lord. What does that mean? Got to close with this thought. What does that mean, Sovereign Lord? You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the kingliness of the king. See, if you're sovereign, you're in charge. You are large and in charge, my friend. And seeing the kingliness of the king, that's the soil in which your soul will grow. Obedience to him. The king of the first part of Isaiah was the king of the second part of Isaiah. And if you would trust him, why? Because he's the conqueror who's gentle. He's the, he's the God who has mercy. Some of you would say right now, well, I would like something from God, but I'm afraid to say I submit. You say I'm afraid to surrender to God. Don't you understand? Here's what I'm saying. Write this down, last point. It is, your, it is his kingship that your soul needs. It's his kingship that your soul needs. <laughs> Some of you, you're sitting there, and a lot of you, you're saying, well, I'm scared to do that. What if, you're saying, what if God asks me to do something I don't want to do? I understand that. I feel that. Abraham didn't want to take Isaac up the hill. Jesus, I'm going to tell you, he didn't want to go to the cross. Of course he's going to ask you to do something you don't want to do. 
But I want you to read out of John's gospel. Let's talk about that acorn or that seed again. Look at what it says. You've got to let this sink into your heart. Look what it says. Very truly, I tell you, unless that seed falls to the ground and dies, you're just going to remain a seed. But if you let it die, boy, it'll produce so much more. See, I understand what it's like to struggle and say, God, I don't know that I want to surrender to your will. I don't know that I really want. I mean, I want to keep coming to church, but to lay myself flat out before you, God, I'm scared to do that. Boy, do I understand that fear. But God says, don't you see, if you don't die to your self-will, listen, you're going to ash anyway. Newsflash, you're going to die anyway. God says, if you want to live the best possible life, if you want to produce, die to your own will. It's the kingliness of the king that we need. I pray that for you. Can I pray for you right now? Father, sin messes us up bad. But you came to deal with that, and we know that. Would you just meet us where we are in this place? Meet us where we are in this place. Everybody just pray this with me. Jesus, meet me where I am. Meet me as I am. Heal me. Bring healing to me. Forgive me of my sin. I lay down my will to live for you. I want your kingliness. Be the king of my life. And I give you praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen.